Welcome to Humans of Twitter, a podcast where we discover the stories behind the people behind the Twitter accounts. People that are interesting, opinionated and surprising. I'm your host, Steve Mulk, and today I'm speaking with someone who describes themselves as writer, presenter, commentator, one of the AFR's 100 most influential women, wife to Jez, mother to Rafi, and winner of the inaugural Bad Frankie Jaffel Comp. Humans of Twitter is their stories in their words in a little more than 140 characters. Please welcome today's edition to the Humans of Twitter list, Jamila Rizvi. Hey, how are you going? Gosh, you sound like an idiot when someone reads out your Twitter bio straight, don't you? <laughs> it's great, isn't it? Because we type them and we add this stuff and often there's people put like their management contact details or, you know, other things and, and that sort of stuff in it. It's something that I think is intended to be, okay, so this is a snapshot of who they are and very rarely is it meant to be a read out description of who I am. Yes, exactly. And mine, like, mine's written for sort of doing media stuff. Like it's written to get you work. So when you hear it read out like that, you're like, oh, I'm a wanker. <laughs> anyway, apologies <laughs> to your listeners for that. Well, no, I think that's a fair e- estimation of every Twitter bio ever. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Jamila, in social settings now, how do you introduce yourself? Um, I'm pretty boring, actually. I never say much. When I first meet someone, I always just say, hi, my name's Jamila. And I pronounce my name really carefully because Mm -hmm. Australians tend to say Jamila. So I always try and get it right the first time and kind of make make a point of giving them the pronunciation correctly. So hopefully they'll get it correctly too, because I'm bad at ever correcting people later on. Like once someone gets it wrong, they get it wrong forever because I don't bother to fix it up. (laughs) So I've said it wrong so far. Yes, you have. But that's okay because you're with 90% of the population. So there's no reason to feel bad. Gosh. And you won't correct me, so I'll just continue with it. Exactly. <laughs> In the situations where you are social and it's a networky situation, how do you introduce yourself as what you do? Um, I am a very bad formal networker. I tend to be the like the person that hides in the in the toilet for most of it or brings out my phone as a safety safety blanket and I, like I'll even fake a phone call and pretend to be really important to avoid having to properly network but if I'm if I'm actually doing it at the moment I, I am doing a bit of everything so that's exactly what I tell people I say I'm doing a bit of writing a bit of tv a bit of radio and a lot of procrastinating faking a phone call is such a politician thing to do <laughs> why is that a politician thing they don't admit to procrastinating. I've never heard a politician say, oh, I don't really do a lot. I spend a lot of time avoiding doing my work for the public. Oh, no, they totally point out that they work very hard and that they earn every cent that they get of our hard-earned tax dollars, hard-spent tax dollars. Um, but I have seen probably of all of the people that I've interfaced with and dealt with, it's politicians and staffers that will fake the phone call ahead of everyone else. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, that's definitely a politics move, definitely. And most politicians don't even need to fake a phone call because they've got staff who can fake the phone call for them. Mm. If so their phone actually rings, it's just a staffer going, look, you've got to get out of this. Yeah, either that or you can just walk over and you say, I'm so sorry, I just need to borrow my boss for something urgent. (laughs) The Prime Minister's on the phone, that kind of thing. Yeah, sure. I don't believe you. Mr. Bernardi, but that's fine. (laughs) I didn't want to talk to you anyway. (laughs) How 
How did you come to be a Canberra worker person? Um, I grew up in Canberra, so I am a Canberra local. Uh, yes, we're, we're quite rare um, and we generally leave, which is sad. Uh, mm. But no, I grew up in Canberra. I went to school in Canberra and then I joined the Labor Party, I think the week before I turned 18. And Great. when you do that, they quickly find ways for you to work for no money up at Parliament House. Mm. Well done. And I make that sound awful, like, you know, I wanted to, like I wanted to. Like that's, that's, mm. that's what university was about for me. It was about meeting people I agreed with and mixing pe- with people who had interest in politics and political ideas and working at Parliament House even before they started to pay me properly was awesome. Like I loved volunteering. I loved, I would have, yeah. I would have done anything. What, what sort of stuff did you do as a volunteer, political volunteer? Um, yeah, in those early days, I was uh, I was working on. So my first year of uni was the year Mark Latham was running <laughs> to be the prime minister. So Excellent, memorable sense of pride in that, um, yeah. or at least a sense of pride that we didn't succeed. And so, <laughs> I, like, I was doing a lot of work being in Canberra on a campaign in Eden Monero, which is mm-hmm. the country's. It's well known as the country's bellwether seat. So it's a marginal seat. But it's something like the last 45 years it has always gone with the government of the day. So there's a bit of who wins Eden Monero wins the country. So it was a very important marginal in in that sense because it's symbolic for a lot of people. But it's right next to Canberra. So we used to go and campaign on the weekends and do everything we could, door knocking in the rain. And I've got an affinity with the people of towns like Queanbeyan and um, the surrounds, Batemans Bay used to be in that electorate. And, uh, yeah, I've knocked on a lot of doors in those areas. Is Eden Monero still a bellwether seat? Because didn't it go against the government at the last election? No, no, it did go with the government. There was a lot of expectation that it would stick with Labor despite the move to the coalition federally um, Mm. because there was a really strong local Labor candidate called Mike Kelly, who I think is running again actually. Uh, But no, it did stick with the government. The myth, the legend continues. (laughs) Well, look, we could easily turn this into a politics podcast. We won't necessarily. I will uh, question what was uh, university in Canberra like? Is Would you consider it to be more of a political hotbed than any other university situation around the country? Because they do tend to be, you know, the socialist alliance want to get your attention and all of that sort of stuff. I don't know that it was. I was pretty involved in student politics and all those bits and pieces mm-hmm. um, and, like, involved quite nationally and that kind of stuff. And yes. everyone seemed to be pretty political to me. I think it's a political time. I think when you're 18, 19, you're figuring out who you are and what you believe and that often means throwing yourself in headfirst to one cause or another and sometimes a whole lot of causes. So, no, I don't think um, we were more politically active than anyone else. We were perhaps better informed at, at different times. We were certainly we certainly got access that meant we should have been better informed because one of the amazing advantages of being a young person at university when you are next to the federal parliament and all the major national institutions is you get incredible access to these big brains in the public service and in the parliament that other people just don't get. Jamila, can I ask, how would you describe your experience of family? Gosh, that's that's an interesting question. You know what? If you'd asked me that 18 months ago, Mm. I would have talked about my parents and my sister. Whereas you ask that now and my brain just goes to my husband and my son. It's amazing how quickly... your head sort of does this transition, I think, after you have your first child to, Mm. I am no longer the child, I am now the parent. 
<laughs> yes. Um, my experience of family. So me as a kid, I suppose, my experience of family was a pretty wonderful one. I'm really close to both my parents and my sister. Um, we're a pretty solid little unit and yes. we, we have lots of weird and wonderful and insane people in our extended family. So we like to kind of buckle down in around each other and sit there in a little you know, prism of thinking we're great and we're not the weird ones when, you know, hmm. it's probably the other way around. Yes. Um, and then I suppose my family and the family I've kind of created for myself, it's just the best. Like family's mm-hmm. the best. It's the best part of my life. And I, it's the most exciting part. And it's, I think, come to define me a lot more than family used to. Family used to be like a really, you know, an important part, but it was an important sort of side, side affair to the main plot line of my life. Whereas now family's front and center, mainly because family is one year old and cries a lot. Mm. And family is so very dependent on mum. Yeah, I think so. And I, I mean, I was, I was adamant that our parenting would be exactly equal before having mm-hmm. a child, exactly equal, like down to yes. the second we would be mm-hmm. equal partners in this parenting thing. And I think um, of the many rude shocks that uh, motherhood gave me, one of the earliest ones was the realisation that I had to physically have the baby <laughs> and that if I was going to breastfeed, there was equality wasn't possible, at least not for a period. Um, And now that I'm not breastfeeding anymore, look, we get pretty close to even. Um, You wouldn't know that with how much I berate my husband for not doing enough, but to be honest, it's probably about half-half now. We both work four days. We both spend a day at home with the baby. Um, It's pretty even during most of the week, actually. Like I reckon we are pretty... As good, as good as you get to equal partners in parenting. Have you found the transition in your relationship with your husband um, challenging with the introduction of Bub? Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> like, is there anyone who hasn't? Like, anyone who says their, just their relationship yeah. just stayed the same. Like, that it just had to be a flat-out lie, right? And mm. we got married um, only, like, a, a couple months before a few months before we had Ruffy and uh, we'd actually never lived together full time before we got married um, because I was living in this weird half Sydney, half Melbourne uh, world of work where I would travel back and forwards Mm. every week. So we'd never lived together full time. So our relationship wasn't maybe fully formed before we had him, I think. Like we're still, you know, we're, we're a year and a bit into being married now and we're still kind of figuring out marriage I think and being together and being a couple and then we just kind of chucked a baby in there at the same time so yeah it has changed massively like it has changed everything um in good ways and bad like that you know there are the hard there are the hard parts like parenting is a hard slog and we're doing this hard thing together and we sleep a lot less than we did and we go out and have a really good time just together a lot less than we did but then there is the other side of it there's the good side which you know it's, it's a cliche but it's a cliche for a reason in that I got to fall in love all over again with Jeremy the father as opposed to mm. just Jeremy before he had a child and he's a different and much more complex and much more wonderful person like that, that's that been one of the best bits about having kids has been watching this person I love become a parent like it's just it's just been really 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 beautiful to watch it happen yeah, absolutely. I, I reflect on, on your words and, and agree my experience was very similar. Have you found that he has surprised you? 
as a father? Hmm. No, I, I, you know what? No, I think I'm supposed to say yes, he has surprised me, but no, he hasn't. I knew he was going to be good at this. I had far mm. more faith in him being an awesome parent than I did in myself. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like way more. Like Jer- Jez was just like he was born to be a dad. Like he's yeah. such a dad and he loves little kids and he's got a quiet, calm confidence and, and a patience, I think, yeah. that makes someone a very good parent, whereas I am deeply impatient and, you know, I don't tolerate fools well and, you know, babies aren't that smart yet because they're babies. <laughs> So mm. tend to be quite foolish, which I struggle with. Whereas Jez is, um, you know, he's oh, he's a really, really good dad and they have a lot of fun together, I think. Like there's a, you know, he has no problem with the house being like turned upside down in the yes. pursuit of a good time with the baby. Excellent. And he just doesn't care. Um, yep. So it's a different, it's a different relationship, but it's a really, yeah, no, it's a really lovely one. I, um, I, he is exactly what I expected him to be as a dad. Uh, you know, caring and sweet and kind and, you know, raising a little boy who is very much a little boy and has, you know, you know, there's te- definitely testosterone in that little body fueling mm. all these things. But it, it, we both said we wanted to raise a child who was happy above everything else and who laughed mm. a lot and took joy in the world and was a kind, thoughtful kind of kid. And I know it feels like maybe we're doing a bit of that. Possibly. <laughs> you guys had to squeeze a lot of relationship into a couple of months at a time when emotionally your body is doing backflips. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That would have been pretty intense. I think it was definitely intense for me and I reckon it was way worse for Jeremy <laughs> like, on reflection. Like I was, I was genuinely crazy. Like I, mm. like I let the hormones go to all the weird and wonderful places the hormones go to and that is part of being female and being pregnant and then being postpartum I think um I don't know anyone who doesn't go slightly nutty but yeah I would have been a lot to deal with um I wouldn't say we're even because I still had to go through childbirth but it would have been pretty rough for him those first few months in particular I think I also had these not just wild mood swings but because I'm a very impulsive person and I make big decisions very quickly. Like I tend to be quite declarative. If I feel something or think something for more than 24 hours, then then that is the truth and it must be so. So in those first few months after having a baby, I was making these wild decisions about career and motherhood and family and everything. (laughs) And Jeremy, I think, must have been watching going, how do I tell her she might change her mind? (laughs) (laughs) How did he tell you? Um, there was, I remember I, I went back to work very early. Um, mm. well, not very early. Everyone's got their different, their different, you know, roundabouts. Yeah, I, I think I was about was three right months. For you. Yeah. I, I went back after about three months and I tried to go back four days a week immediately. And there was, I personally, there was no way I was ready for that. Um, mm-hmm. but probably didn't realize it. And I also went back to a company that was changing very rapidly. And so yeah. a lot had happened in the three months I was out and I had the unrealistic expectation that it would have stood still for me and nothing yeah. should have changed. And the combination of the two made me wildly unhappy. And Jeremy was very good at forcing me to take some time to make the decision because he yeah. was like, if you quit, you've quit, right? You can't just go back and go, sorry, yeah. change my mind. And he was very good at kind of just quietly making me defer the decision until I was actually sure what I wanted to do. 
which was very good of him and resulted in a lot of yelling from me <laughs> at the time. It, it sounds like he is an excellent sounding board for you, someone that can hear the emotional gamut of rants and raves and thoughts and processes and help you see through that. Yeah, I think so. I think he, Jez is, um, we're quite yin and yang, I think in that, in that Mm -hmm. respect, like he's very even tempered and he is slow to make decisions. He's methodical. He's a lawyer who, you know, believes in, he's very risk averse and lots of checks and balances and doing things exactly the way the rules say Mm -hmm. to do them. Um, whereas I'm more into efficiency over anything else <laughs> and just like to do things very quickly. Uh, so, yeah, I think, we, I think we probably play that role for each other, like we moderate the other one's behaviour. Um, yes. But I think he's a lot more grateful for how I moderate his behaviour and I should be a lot more grateful for how he moderates mine. <laughs> it sounds like uh, your son is going to grow up to be a, uh, a touring hippie clairvoyant. Um, yes, possibly. against every bit of order that you two have. Yeah. It's, um, God, that poor kid, seriously. We're just like, <laughs> so he's just turned one, right? And we're just having yeah. this realisation of until one, you're kind of just keeping a blob alive, right? The blob yeah. does oh, some yeah. cute shit. And that's, sorry, I shouldn't swear. He does some nice things along the way and that's fun. You can. It's okay. I can? Okay. Please. I'll try, I'll try and hold it back, but there'll be a bit. Um, <laughs> but like now he's, there's no denying that he is a person like with yes. feelings and opinions and, and, and the rest. And I, I'm sort of coming to this realisation that we're going to have to start parenting rather, rather than caring now. Yep. And that's, that's terrifying. Yeah, I feel that pain. As someone who has just attended uh, the parent-teacher interviews for semester one <gasps> oh, my gosh. boy of grade six and my girl of grade four, uh, I... Just driving back with the, all of them in the car, my wife and, and the kids, just thought to myself, I am not old enough for this. <laughs> I'm not grown up enough for this responsibility. You, you. <laughs> They're going to be fully formed human being adults soon enough oh. and I am going to have been in charge. Don't get me wrong, they are, del- they are delightful kids that somehow I put this all in the, the court of my wife, have managed to grow up to be functional preteens. Um, well done, both of you. Oh, no. Well done, my wife. Um, I'm the worst. In a good way, but the worst. Uh, I am, yeah, it's going to be, the teenage years are going to be fun. Interesting, fun, good fun, but wow. I I remember, Jamila, uh, sorry, Jamila, very, um, very vividly life from about grade six onwards. So I'm now looking at my son going, I can remember doing things at your age that, both you're not doing for whatever reason, but also stuff that you're doing that I never even contemplated. And I'm so, it, on one hand, I'm not emotionally mature for this. On the other hand, I'm so old. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's um. It, there's. It's hard to kind of deny your age. I think once you've had kids, because they're growing oh. up so quickly, years yeah. sort of can't just go by like without you really noticing anymore. Like. You are watching it so deliberately and you're marking each, you know, couple of months and stuff and you can see their development. So you're like, oh, that's right. I'm aging too. Mm. Yes. Look at me take my first steps as a parent. Yeah, exactly. I just turned 30 as well. So I just had a scary birthday. So you sort of have, I don't know, it's all a bit in harsh perspective right now. 
but scary good. I mean, let's be fair. You've crossed the threshold uh, that many people haven't had kids by. Certainly professional people haven't yes, had kids by. Yes, That's the joy of uh, me not being very good at taking birth control. <laughs> <laughs> that is the happy, the happy consequence. <laughs> Oh, look, there is a recent trend in humans on Twitter talking about birth control failing people. Oh, that's good. I hope I'm, I hope I'm amongst good, good company who, who aren't very good at taking tablets. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it's good crazy, but wow. So very surprised, obviously happy surprise, but surprise we're having a kid. Oh, yeah, massive, like massive surprise. Like just wasn't, and surprise in the sense of we just weren't prepared. You know what yes. I mean? And we weren't ready to have children and we'd only just gotten engaged and, um, you know, there were there were definitely friends, I think, saying when we just got engaged, oh, that was quick. So then it was like, and. Be a surprise. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think, yeah, I think I think it's been good for me. Like it's been, it mm-hmm. was definitely, I don't want to even say, say it's the right decision because it almost wasn't a decision. Um, it just sort of started happening somehow. But. It was a good call for me. I think I'm, I could have very easily fallen into a life of just pushing the career side of what I was doing really, yes. really hard and kind of forgetting about children. And as someone who has always wanted a family, I'm, I'm really glad that that didn't happen, that there was this intervening act that, <laughs> that, that meant it was kind of thrust mm. upon me. Yeah, because I, I worry maybe I'm, I might not have, I don't know, I think I might have let it pass me by, not in a... Um, oh my God, tearing my hair out. I'm too old sense. Just in, I think I could have got, I could have stayed preoccupied with work above all else very easily. And you get the incredible side benefit of having a 10 year old at your 40th birthday party who will be able to party on with the rest of them, but also give you a very thoughtful present. That's so true. Although at 10, I can't like send him out to work. Like he's not going to buy his own. I don't know. I'm going to have to fund it. Yeah. And mum and dad are paying for it. No question. So it's not going to be like a, you know, a very expensive watch or something. It's not a real present. It's the same with marriage, right? So now all our money's in together. So when I get a present and it's a bad present, it's like with my own money, I just bought something I don't want. Mm. Did you keep the receipt, darling? I have trained you well. Always, Jeremy always keeps the receipts. He's figured that out now. Yep. Oh, that's that's every good man, I think, learns that. Someone pulls them aside at their bucks too and goes, right, the things you need to learn to do. <laughs> what one thing would you change about your life today? Oh, my gosh. You're not starting with, like, easy questions, are you? Oh, we had the Far easy around. Oh, yeah, like what? what's my name and stuff. Yeah, I was okay with yeah. that. Wow, what would I change about my life? Um you know, like there's a million little things that you change straight away. Yeah. Um, wow, what would I change? I'm, I'm trying to think of some big grand like announcement that I would change that would bring someone back to life or, you know, mm-hmm. undo a terrible decision that I once made or, you know what I mean? Mm, and such a butterfly effect that that would have too. Then you don't know what would happen. Yeah. I mean, if I, if I look back on my life and I look back on how I've been in my life, the thing I'd want to change was the incredible arrogance I had as a young person <laughs> and belief that I, you know, you know how teenagers have that belief that they know more than anyone else about the world. 
Mm. Oh, form an orderly queue right over here. Yeah, yeah. I had that, but like a lot. (laughs) I had that for longer than most people. I was an overachiever (laughs) in being a stuck up little shit who thought I knew everything. Um, Right. And I think I would, you know, I would, I w- there are moments I, I look back on moments of my life and opportunities I had that I took for granted or where I didn't learn what I could have, where I would have got a lot more out of something by just shutting up and listening to people who knew better than me um, sure. that I, I have an appreciation for now that make me very embarrassed. So I would probably change them. And then, you know, I think I'm the same as everyone. There's things I'd change about my life where I there are relationships that ended not necessarily romantic relationships but friendships or romantic relations or whatever that ended in a way I wish they hadn't ended and I'm not saying they shouldn't have ended like things I think often run their natural course but by being you know I don't want to blame everything on being young and ignorant but you know you you learn from having your mistakes and I look back on things and go I could have handled that better I could have been a kinder person I could have been a more forgiving person I could have been a more empathetic person Mm. And no doubt in 10 years I will look back on me now and go, here are all your other deficiencies that I wish didn't exist. (laughs) Or they could have just not been jerks. Yeah, that too. There were a few of them, but I don't regret that. I wouldn't change that. Mm. You know, I'll just write those people off. (laughs) But there were definitely definitely occasions where I was the jerk and I wish I hadn't been. The the younger, uh, strong-headed, I know everything, Jamila, of your yes. youth, do you think that it's that that has really helped you get into like open some doors for you? Because that confidence, some people call it arrogance, some people call it confidence, depending on how you play it, it plays very well in a political field. Yeah, it does. It does. And there were definitely, you know, there were things I kind of, you know, for want of a better word, faked my way into. <laughs> mm. um, and you know, I have this really strong memory. I remember I've, I'd just gotten a job working for Kate Ellis, who was yes. a minister in the Rudd government at the time, and it was my first day and Fantastic. I may have sold myself in as knowing a lot more than I did. And yes. she it was just before question time and she'd just learnt that she was getting a question. And what she was saying to me was, I need you to go and write the speech that I would give in response to said question in question time. And part of what you have to do, because it was a Dorothy Dixer, is you actually write your own question, right? You're given the topic yeah. that the question's on, but you write your own question. And she was saying this, but she said it in all the parliamentary acronyms of Canberra speak, and I had yeah. zero idea what she was asking me to do. Right. And I remember being like, yep, yep, absolutely, absolutely. When do you need it? And she was like, within the hour. And I was like, no worries, no worries. Went back to my desk and started Googling all the acronyms, and they didn't come up. And I was just sitting there going, what do I do? <laughs> And you know what I'm really embarrassed by? I called my dad. So? Isn't that the worst? Like I was such a little girl response. I called my dad for help. Anyway, it all worked out. But, um, yeah, there were times like that where I think where I was lucky enough not to be found out for not knowing what I was doing, uh, where faking your way through something was helpful. Um, I don't know. I think it's just that sense. I think as you get older, you see the world less and less in black and white and you see yes. more and more shades of grey and yes. you see you just you just understand the world in less absolute terms. By the time I'm 90, I'm just going to be like, I don't know, maybe Corey Bernardi's just a really lovely misunderstood guy. You know what I mean? I'll have no views or principles. I'll just think everything's a maybe. You won't be saying that. I hope not. 
No human being with a clear sense of thought will be saying that. <laughs> I hope so. It's oh, It hurts me so badly. Can I ask, can you decode or, or reveal the secrets, the inside, uh, behind the velvet rope? What is one of those acronyms that you were delivered that you didn't know at the time? Oh, I think one of them would have been a QTB, which is a question time brief. None of this is interesting. <laughs> How many political podcasts are there this election? Jamila? Oh, like a thousand. But how many people are actually listening to them? About a thousand? At least a thousand. If there's two people on the podcast, that's 2,000. Um, there are some very good ones. Sorry, my, my, my yeah. comment there about how many people are listening to the election podcasts is not reflective of the quality of some of the election podcasts because there are some really good ones. There are some really crap ones, but yeah. there are some really good ones, yes. I just think and there's a very the small number of politically obsessed people in this country. Yeah. Well, I guess it depends on who you hang out with. I think that we go through spits and spurts, right? And and an election year does it to us, particularly a federal election year where more people than would normally care, care about the politics stuff. That's true. Normally, this election I'm finding, if you're not a total political tragic, you've really tuned out. Yeah. There's a genuine sense of not apathy, but inevitability, maybe. About this election campaign, I think I think Australia knew how it was going to turn out before they started. They knew which way they yeah. were voting. They knew who was going to be prime minister afterwards, and it was just kind of like this little dance that we had to go through. Yeah, eight weeks will not have changed that. No. And yet here we are at time of publication of this podcast. It is three days until the election actually takes place, and uh, so it's recorded the week before then. So we've got a week to go. And, and it's still they're still pushing it hard, like and and as is the case, uh, you know the actual campaigns are only just being announced. When we're recording this podcast, the Liberal um, platform hasn't formally been delivered to the Australian voting public. Oh yeah, this peculiar farce we have of um, political parties, certainly the major ones, only launching in quotation marks, their campaign like a week before, which avoids having to say a lot of things that you don't want to say and get your costings in. You can kind of put yeah. that off for longer and longer if you push the, the theatre of the launch back. Uh, but it must be very confusing for if you're not sort of well rehearsed in the game, you're sitting there with the objectivity of not being involved going, these people are weird. Oh. And all the rubbish of early in the election campaign, revealing policies and saying, oh, we've got announcements and those sorts of things. And then when people ask you about them, going all coy about some oh, of the yeah. detail. Yeah. That's all still to come. There was well, there on. was hundreds of millions in the budget under a line item of decisions taken but not yet announced or something similarly <laughs> peculiar, which basically means we're saving some cash to announce shit mm. later, please, because we want to announce yeah. it closer to the election day. Oh, it's... I've seen you walk and talk with the best of them in your very excellent Story Hunters series, <laughs> I appreciate that. The walk and talk is hard, and I do the walk and talk in some serious heels, which is mm. more difficult. Oh, look, West Wing Nuts will know exactly what the walk and talk is. But even just, you look very at home inside the, the hallowed halls of Parliament House when you were there with Rosie. Yeah. Would you go back? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Look, w w when you come out of Canberra, so I, w I worked there, I mean, I was volunteering sort of from age 18. I think I got my first mm -hmm. job working for a politician at 19 and I worked, I started working for Kevin, I think I was maybe 21 or 22 and mm -hmm. 
like all up, like I probably grew up, like I spent most of my time between age 18 and 25 in Parliament House. So you, you do, you feel pretty comfortable. It becomes a second home, you know, you know, the ins and outs yes. of the building. And, you know, when you work for Kevin, you you genuinely do pretty much live in that building because you don't really yeah. go home because <laughs> that's how long the hours are. And, you, yeah, you do. You get to know all the people that you don't see on the nightly news who make that place tick, you know. Yeah. You get to know them all. You get to know. I remember one of the cleaners in Kevin's office, this wonderful woman, bringing me soup one day in the morning because she knew I was getting sick and you know, the, the guys who run the coffee shop Aussies and the attendants yep. and the guards and the, the people you don't see on TV who are the reason that building actually operates. They become yeah. family. So you do, I do feel really comfortable when I'm there. I feel like I'm going back home. You know which interfaith prayer room is appropriate to either go and have a sleep in or have a, an intimate engagement with someone else? I have never had an intimate engagement nor prayed in any of the praying rooms. <laughs> you may not have, Jamila. Oh, no, others How certainly have. Others certainly have. And, and look, that's that's people coming closer to to their spiritual oneness. <laughs> However, whatever gets you closer to God or whatever non deity you believe in, it's up to you. Oh, there was there was certainly lots of oh God screaming, that's for sure. <laughs> but enough. In a crisis or an argument, I think I know the answer. Are you fight or flight? Oh, I'm fight. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm definitely fight. Um, it has to get really bad for me to run. Um, yes. but it does happen. My husband knows I'm, 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 I have hit like absolute peak anger when I say I'm sleeping in the other room or I just need to get out of the house. So the yep. flight for me is, is the extreme beyond the extreme. Yes. I, I genuinely don't have a problem with a fight and, but even not a fight. I just, I just don't think there's anything wrong with having a vigorous discussion about ideas. Yep. And Amen. I don't think that's a fight. I, I enjoy that and I have friends across the political spectrum and who I genuinely enjoy engaging with. One of the main reasons I left Parliament actually and working there was I started to feel that I was in this cycle of just talking to people who agreed with me already. Yes. And, and you know, we, we, we had this sense in that, you know, I worked with Labor Party people, I was living with Labor Party people, I was sleeping with Labor Party people, you know, and we, we were all intensely engaged in politics and yet spending all our time apparently trying to have a better understanding of people who aren't intensely engaged in politics and, and their lives and what they care about. And when you're only talking to people who agree with you, you lose your ability to understand people who don't. And yep. I wanted to get out, I think, partly because I needed to realise how other people worked and lived and thought and what shaped your values when you weren't really politically obsessed. Um, because otherwise I think you get this kind of superiority complex that makes you feel like your views are more important than someone else's. And there's nothing wrong with thinking your views are better than someone else's. You're allowed to think that you're right, mm-hmm. but thinking that you are more entitled to an opinion than someone else, I have a problem with. You just described politics on Twitter. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> that is Twitter. <laughs> that is Twitter in a nutshell. Oh, and it can be brutal. I had the weirdest exchange with someone the other night who was all about no haters, but their thoughts, because they were challenging me, challenging me about a, a couple of statements I'd made about asylum seekers. And I was a hater because I was pro asylum seeker uh. and seeing a lot of stuff get fixed and changed about that. Uh, and they said, that means that you're against our vets. 
so and our elderly. I went, no, I've not said that once in this conversation. You're a hater. You're blocked. Okay. That was confusing. You know, it's something I've always suspected about you, that you hate old people. Oh, look, like, I, I can hate see everyone. you walking down the street, like kind of tripping up people with canes and walkers just well, for the, the hell the of thing, it. The thing about me, Jamila, is that I hate everybody equally. So much so that that equalness means that people might perceive it that I actually like them. I'm pretty sure there's a – who's the fictional character who says almost – Henry Higgins in Pygmalion mm. says almost exactly mm. the same thing, that he's just as rude to everybody. <laughs> I like you here a lot, I do. <laughs> oh, shut up. Um, can, can I ask you this? And I'm happy for you to contemplate it or direct it as you see it. Where is the line between public and private for you? Oh, wow. Um, I think that's one of the most personal things. Um, Like that's an incredibly personal question. I'm not saying it's a bad question. It's just a personal Mm. one. I think everyone has a very different sense of public and private. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for, For me, it's also something that changes through your life. Like I think I've yep. been, like when I was a staffer, I was a very private person because there's a real view in, in, in politics that when you work for a minister or a member of parliament that they're the star, not you. Yep. You know, it's all about them um, and your life and what you do. I've always been a bit uncomfortable about the staffers who try and make themselves a personality in the media. Yes. Like it, your job is to look after your boss um, yep. and implement what they believe and try and make sure that they're making the best decisions, which means putting forward your opinion. But once they make a call, it's to, you weren't elected to anything. Like yeah. your job's to back them up. So I suppose I was very private then. Yeah, I went to Mamma Mia and had that kind of transition to a more public life on social media mm-hmm. and um, started to do a lot of press and things like that. And I, I think I, I very slowly tried to become more comfortable with giving more of my life publicly um, yes. and found, I think, through that the, the benefit, like the amazing human connection you get out of when you're vulnerable and you're honest about your vulnerabilities and, and the vulnerabilities in your life and, and what you're a bit shit at, basically, mm-hmm. um, there's amazing human connection that comes from that and, I, and I'm not sure it can come from anything else other than that vulnerability. So I became yep. quite public and then after having a baby, I... I genuinely think that I'm someone who writes about parenting and I write about politics and I write about issues and I write about quite a lot about my life and I think my life, therefore, I'm choosing to make that public and, and that's fine but I'm very conscious that my little boy hasn't got the choice to be public. Yes. Um, and my husband is just an incredibly private person mm-hmm. and, you know, if I write about him or talk about him, I, al- I almost always try and make sure I check with him first uh, sure. If I think I'm going to chat about him and that he's comfortable, I'm always careful about what I say about him because he hasn't chosen this sort of media life. Yeah, and I'm yeah. really conscious my, my little boy might be the same as him or he might be a total show pony like me and want to be on everything. But Very he hasn't decided yet. So, yeah. yeah, there's been some things like I keep him, like I talk about parenting, but I talk about it from my perspective and I talk about me. I try to share less about him. Um, yeah. on social media. I don't put his face on social media is a big one for me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like yep. he's not, if you see him on my Instagram, you'll always see the back of his head or like, mm-hmm. so I'm sort of trying to make sure he's not identifiable, which is yeah. really sad because he's so freaking cute. <laughs> like yeah, the world is missing out on my adorable child. Yeah, I hear that. Well, my wife and I were similar in that we agreed to not post pictures of our kids. Not And went like far out. 
I'm not anybody important publicly and neither is she. There's no real threat of anybody wanting to, to come and take our kids, but it was an acknowledgement that we want to protect them. You know, they haven't had a say in this and it's similar things. You might've seen, you know, the back of heads or legs or arms or those sorts of things, but not the, the delightful little animals that they were. Yep. Um, they've grown up a bit now and we're softening that, but that's because we also get the chance to say, do you mind if I post this on Instagram? Yeah, well, they can have a say now. Yeah. Uh, which I think changes things. But it's, you know, it's weird. Like I, we, we didn't really um, have that issue to begin with. We were quite comfortable with it. And it was actually the mm-hmm. first couple of weeks of, after having him where we both suddenly realised that our social media was going to become 100% our child because <laughs> we were obsessed. Oh, yes. And, yep. you know, unlike, you know, my partner is talking to his however many friends on Instagram or Facebook, right, like yeah. a few hundred or whatever, whereas I'm talking to, you know, 60, 70,000 people across social, the social medias and mm. that's different. You know, they're, they're, there's a line in there that we've drawn. Do I think it's the right line or a good line for anyone else? I have no idea. <laughs> like mm-hmm. We're just kind of figuring out as we go along, I think. It's quite hard, It's mm-hmm. especially when, when social media is, especially when you're in the media, you, you are sharing a lot of your life and what your life is like. So much of my life is my little boy and not sort of talking about him, posting about him is, is odd. Yes, I hear that. If the verdict was to return to television, would you go back? <laughs> yes. Why? Why would it return to television? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, look, all right. So the verdict was well established to be one of the worst, if not the worst, television show of last year. Um, it had some competition. It had some competition. It had, it had some strong competition. Um, I still believe in what they were trying to do. I, I, mm. And it comes back to what we just talked about, about, about the political debate just being available to a certain class of, of, of peoples, like people who are really super hyper-politically engaged. The people who watch mm-hmm. Q&A on a Monday night are a particular human being who is pretty into politics, who's, you know, um, really engaged in issues and also really politically literate. There are a huge number of people in the Australian population who aren't politically literate but care about issues and who have a vote and have opinions on things but feel ostracised by the way political media works because political media is designed to make you feel dumb and like you're on the outside rather than that you're on the inside and that it's your democracy too. So I love Mm -hmm. that the more mainstream commercial channels are saying, you know what, we can do debate and discussion about current affairs and politics and issues that is more accessible to people and doesn't make them feel stupid but makes them feel included. So I think the idea behind it was a really great one. I don't know if it was executed particularly well. Mm. I think um, that there was a lot of shock value in there uh, yep. rather than a, an attempt for debate. But, you know, having worked in the media, I also know that, the same way I used to have to get people to click on things, you've got to get people to switch on that channel. So I think it was an experiment and I don't think it was a failed experiment. I think it was a learning experiment. And I think they learned a lot of things in putting that show on about how they could maybe do it better um, mm-hmm. and what worked and what didn't. So I hope they bring something back in some capacity. Um, I, think that, I think that's a good thing. I think, it, I think it's good for the mainstream commercial channels to be trying to talk about politics in a way that will engage people. I am all for that. Maybe it will revert back to the original idea of Carl getting a late night chat show. 
oh, but like, all right. So there's all this chatter, right, about how it was just like a little thing in Carl's contract to, you know, keep Carl mm. happy, blah, 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 blah. Carl's great, right? Mm. And I don't say that derogatorily. He, no, I understand. He's such a good host and he's a really interesting guy and I think he's exciting and he's appealing and he's someone who can talk about politics in a way that will get people who aren't that interested excited about it. More, more Carl. You love him. I do. I really do. I have little crushes <laughs> on so many people in the media, male and female, and Carl is absolutely one of them. And look, and, and I, I echo that. There are lots of people that are crushworthy in Australian modern media. Yeah, we've got some good ones, hey. Mm. We've got some good chicks as well. Like we really yeah. do. Some really good ones. I was thinking this the other day. You turn on the ABC at the moment, and this is with mm. no disrespect to the many outstanding male journalists on the ABC, but the girls mm. are killing it. Mm-hmm. Killing it. Like you've got Virginia Trioli in the morning, you've got right through to like Emma Alberici late at night, you've got Lee doing yes. her business at around 7.30 and then, you know, Annabelle's in there and there's just, you've got the Sarah Ferguson's, you've got the Julia Beds on the drum. It's just, oh, yeah. And with the exception of Tony Jones hosting Q&A, Monday night from 7.30, even 7 o'clock, depending on what part of the country you're in, it is ladies' night on uh, ABC on Monday nights. Oh, absolutely. I mean, how could I forget, like, Carolyn Jones on Australian Story, like, you know, one of the greatest female journalists and longest serving this country's ever had. Like, oh, it's a a feast for the feminist in me. I did forget Paul Barry, but he is often, well, depending on which side of politics you are, he's easily excused. (laughs) Um, I don't mean that in a bad way. (laughs) Jamila, uh, sorry, again, wow. I apologise. It's okay. No, I wasn't going to say it. Your name is Jamila and that's what it should be. <laughs> what are you going to achieve in the next 12 months? Oh, that's so good. Okay. Um, I, this is an easy question to answer because I believe in living my life by a series of KPIs. So yeah. I have a list. <laughs> uh, I am currently writing my first book. Um, right. Which, if it's not published in the next 12 months, well, I owe Penguin a lot of money. Um, <laughs> so I will have published my first book. Hopefully uh, the second book that I have signed up to write immediately after, which is uh, very presumptive of me, uh, will mm. be underway. Mm. I will have a whole lot more going on in the media um, that is all yes. sort of coming into play in the next month or two. Um, I'm hoping that it will be across all the platforms one of the things I'm learning very quickly is that I just love conversations. I don't really care what medium they take place on. Um, yep. I, my favourite's radio, mainly because you get to talk without thinking first. It's the same as podcasts, anything audio. Mm-hmm. Um, but you don't have to do your hair and makeup. It's just a bomb. Um, you can do it in your pyjamas or, as I am wearing now, my active wear. And yes. Not, I haven't been active. I have no intention of being active today. Anyway. <laughs> um, so that will happen. I My son will turn two in the next 12 yes. months. And Accurate. he will be, I don't know, I just, I just want him to be as happy as he seems to be right now. He is the smiliest, chattiest, bubbliest little kid and I, I just want to do everything we can to keep him happy. And yes. I'm also hoping to be a much better wife in this next year of marriage than I have been so far because it's very much been all about me and I'm trying very hard at the moment to make it a, at least a little bit, a smidge more about him. And the other one I want is I want to hold on to the wonderful friendships I made 
at Mamma Mia, which is the big job that I've kind of moved on from in the last 12 months. And mm. the women, the amazing women I got to work with who I've stayed close to um, so far, God, I hope I get to stay close again. You know, like I don't want, I don't want that, those relationships to disappear because they're just these excellent women and I will be very sad if those, if those relationships move away. Is that enough? Oh, is that enough to do in the next 12 months? What else will I do? I will also lose true. 15 kilos and become incredibly hot. And what else will become. I do? I will become a fit person. I will probably quit sugar like Sarah Wilson. I'm never going to do that. Um, mm. You know, I'm not, all, all the usual things that you promise to do that will last two days, if that. You have a sizable list of achievements in the next 12 months. <laughs> yeah, but that's because that's they're in the future. So if they don't happen, then that's okay. <laughs> Just no, I like, to, I like to live life at full tilt. I do like to do yep. a lot of things and I'm, I'm someone who gets bored very easily and I'm not, I'm not good at all the slowy downy things that are healthy, you know, mm. like, you know, how the meditation is the thing at the moment, right? And the fine, yep. you know, the number of times I'm listening to interviews where these, these mothers talk about how they stay centered and balanced by finding 20 minutes, two times a day to meditate and, you know, I know you're supposed to rail at that and go, oh, I just couldn't find the time. I could totally find the time. I could find 20 minutes twice a day to do something that wasn't watch Netflix, but I don't want to because I don't like meditating because as soon as I try and clear my mind, I panic about not having enough to do. I'm someone who likes mm-hmm. to be very busy. I like to have lots on and I'm not very good at being still. And I'm sure I'd be a healthier, happier person if I took the time to learn that but that would be quite painful, I suspect. And I'm much happier just being busy. I think if you found 20 minutes twice a day to centre yourself, slow down and think about nothing, you would fill 40 minutes a day full of all of the things that you needed to achieve between now and the next time you needed to do that. Yeah, and there's also like there's a lot of good TV to watch and Mm. I, I am committed to that. Uh, deeply committed. I should have added that to my KPIs for the next 12 months. Um, I, Shooting right to the top. I like all the things. I like reading. I like movies. I like I like all the terrible pop culture. Yes. Um, I mean, there's going to be Survivor Australia. I mean, that's 21 hours of the next yes, year please. anyway. Like, mm. gone on that. And then probably another 21 hours talking about it to people. Easily. And I need time for such things. I have a couple of recommendations I can't waste it meditating. I know. A couple of recommendations. You're probably already across them. I'm sure you are. Oh, yeah. No, go ahead. Unreal Season 2 on Stan. Amazing. I haven't done Unreal yet. And everyone (gasps) I've said that to is like, what? You must watch it. Oh, Jamila, you will absolutely, Jamila, have an amazing kind of weird television aneurysm. Okay. I'm so Okay. I will do it. I will do it. You are. I I mentioned this the other day again to Mia Friedman, who's probably told me a hundred times I have to watch that show and that I'll love it. And like she's gotten to the point where she's not talking to me about it anymore because she's so angry I haven't watched. The first season, it's their their hour eps, ten episodes. Yeah. The first season I think is still on stand. The second season is running week to week on stand, so you okay. can catch up. I can catch up now. Um. It, it. It. Wow. That. That's. Will get you ahead of yourself. Wow. That will be incredible. Rad. What else? Um, uh, Secret City. If you're not doing it, I'm no, sure you I are. I am. I am. It is mm-hmm. very very good. It is very good. I've seen all the way to the end, and it's crackalacking. Uh, and Kettering Incident, which is about to start Excellent. on uh, Showcase as well. No, is... that one I am on board with. At the moment, I am in the middle of Outlander, which yep. I don't enjoy. 
but I'm so invested now that I have to get to the end what? of the season. Why persist? I don't know, but I, like, I need to know what happens. I like to finish things. I don't like things to be unfinished. And I know it's not actually going to finish at the end of the season anyway because they're going to do a million more seasons, but it's really annoying me. Like it's, uh, the, the, the plot holes are annoying me. She annoys me. He annoys me. And I'm still watching. I, was do- I, I hate watched. Well, I, like, I hate watched. It's, it's like I'm still watching Game of Thrones and I'm not quite mm. sure why. Because I'm in, I'm in it now. And even yeah. though it's not very good anymore, I've got to keep watching. Oh, I haven't done that in a long time. Yeah. I have hate watched a season and then went, nah, gave up on it the season after. Yeah. I'm, I'm very loyal. Like, I'm still in Grey's Anatomy. Wow, yeah. get out. Yeah. Get out now. <laughs> I think I'm probably the only one. And I've tr- I keep trying to retire. Like, I'm like, when this character leaves, I'll, I'm out. I was like, when Christina Yang's not there, I'm out. And then I was like, when McDreamy's not there, I'm out. And I'm still, what am I doing? you got to get out. I'm still in Scandal. Scandal's yeah. total rubbish now, but I'm still watching that. It is total rubbish now. Yeah. Game of, Game of Thrones I'm really locked into because we, mm-hmm. are the, like, amongst our kind of group of friends, we live in, like, this sort of spread out hippie commune, basically, in that we've let, yeah. we, all our friends have moved into the same suburb. Um, but we're the only ones amongst us who have Foxtel. So we host <laughs> Game of Thrones at our place every Monday night and we call Excellent. it Game of Faux and we get Vietnamese food and we watch Game of Thrones. But, like, I can't pull out because I would let down 17 or 18 people. <laughs> I just have to host them and not watch in my own home. Game of Fur. Yeah, it's the um, best. It, yeah, no, you stick with it. it it's, it's pretty dr- dramatic. No, yeah, get out of Grey's quick, yeah. quick smart. In I'm fact, fail. you'll find if you dump that... And Scandal, you will be caught up on Unreal in no time. That's true. Though I'm just watching Orange is the New Blacks just dropped season four, which I'm rapidly working my way through. It's really good. Best season yet I'm going to put out there. It's good so far. The first few episodes have been very, very good. Oh, it's great. It's so good. Hey, Jamila. Yeah. Thank you so much for the chance to speak with you today. Please know the things that you've said are very special and you're highly valued. Thank you so much. (laughs) Oh, wow. <laughs> no, if you want me to say it sarcastically, please it know the thing like you said. You're it very special. special. Out of all the people I've podcasted, you are, no. That thank you very much. Thank you for having me. There's some pretty impressive company amongst your your podcast chatterers. So I, it's it's not it's nice to be amongst that list and pretend I'm as important as they are. It's a great collection of people who can't say no or are easily worn down. <laughs> or, you know, maybe just a great collection of people who are very impressed by you on Twitter. No, just a great collection of people. I think we can full stop it there. <laughs> no, that's not just that's just wrong. Obviously, you're a, a tweeter at times. Are there other social accounts you would want people to know about? Oh, yeah. I'm Jamila Rizvi on everything because the one excellent thing about having a unusual name is no one has your handle. So I'm the nice. same thing on all the... All the social medias. I kind of I, I post lots of pretty things on Instagram and on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Look, at the moment, because I don't have a digital outlet publishing my work, which will be solved in about another fortnight, but right now mm-hmm. I don't. Facebook has just become me ranting. <laughs> so yep. don't follow that. That's not fun. <laughs> <laughs> do you Snapchat? I do, but only when I remember. I'm really, mm-hmm. I'm trying to do the Snapchat. Like I really am but I forget about it. Like it's not yeah. in my brain as something I should do all the time. And, uh, yeah, and, and then I, I, I don't really get it yet. I'm trying yeah. to get it. I'm trying to be cool and up with the kids, but I don't get Snapchat. 
I don't know why it's interesting yet. I just put it down that I'm a 43-year-old male and it's not targeted at me, so I don't have to think about it. I'm just struggling. I'm really struggling. Yeah, it's it's a thing. Just harking back to a conversation that no one else, if they've hung in, will have heard because it was pre this recording. <laughs> this has gone on quite some time. We need to engage a round two, I think. Oh, let's do it. At some point in the near future, that would be lovely if you're up for it. Oh, absolutely. We can um, – who doesn't love talking about themselves? Seriously. This has been delightful. But I would like to hear more about your parent-teacher interviews. So let's do it again. Okay, let's. This has been Humans of Twitter, and I can confirm that at Jamila Rizvi is indeed human. And that's not sarcastic. <laughs> it's not a bot name. <laughs> <laughs>